0: We're so grateful for the opportunity of being here. I am here, and certainly I speak for those who are facing you tonight. And introducing these on here, I'm going to ask that you hold your applause until uh, they have all... uh, uh, and ask them to remain standing. I'll use the first names here. And on my left, I'll ask Roy from California... And May from San Antone, Mrs. Lamb from Muleshoe, Chester from Midland, Mrs. Lee from Dallas, a good friend Clarence from Florida. And that cute little rascal there. I wish old Chuck was here to see you, hon. I'm telling you, I wish he appreciated you like we do. Elsa from California, <clears throat> and another California, Courtney. I'm Burton. Father Max gone, so we can eliminate those two. Francis from Midland, Ed from Dallas. Juanita from New York, creator of monuments for Mule Shoe, and Don from Dallas. Thank you, panel. I wish it was so that we didn't have to introduce ourselves, we who are facing you, and we feel more obligated in regards that you should introduce yourself to us, our deep sense of gratitude for the opportunity of being a part of this uh, great convention. And I think it's one of the nicest ones. We were commenting here a while ago, this is the 20th, when the first one was held in 1946, and Ed told me there were 56 people there, and it cost $17. I'm in favor of some more like that. My sponsor, my sponsor Doc Black, whose birthday is this year, uh, this month, and, and I'm very conscious of that. And I thought maybe I, instead of, I dressed up when I found out when Homer called me and told me that uh, I was going to be chairman or asked me to be chairman for this occasion. I borrowed enough money from Florence to buy me a new suit and a new shirt and a tie and I dressed all up before I left home and I went to uh, call Florence out and said, how do you look? Says you look just like Jack Odom. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to tell any jokes. I wish I could. I started. Uh, I had two or three. I think it's pretty good, but I, I, I don't know how to tell jokes much. I'm kind of like an old boy that went to the penitentiary, and he was standing in his chow lying down there, and somebody hollered out a number. Everybody started laughing. Somebody else hollered out another number, and everybody just laughed, and he says, what goes on here? He says, oh, we're going to be down here together a long time, and all these jokes just pass around, so we don't tell the jokes. We just call them by numbers. He says, can I do that? And he said, sure. I said, go ahead. He says, he called out a number and nobody laughed. Called out another number and nobody laughed. He says, what's the matter? He says, well, some can tell them and some can't. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, <I laughs> but it seems to have been the trend all the way through from the very beginning when Roy was up here and he was talking about <clears throat> uh, his beginning in AA and, and uh, Houston down here. And I think we're all more or less uh, kind of a descendants of uh, that first group that we started here. I know I, uh, my sponsor was was uh, kind of a grandchild. Esther came from Houston and went to Dallas, and she was my sponsor's sponsor. And through all of those things there, and Doc Black was, uh, as so many of us remember him, a... Uh, the wisdom that he gave us and those things that are given that you and I might have this today. Doc came up to Tyler to see me, and he told me, he says, Now, Burton says, I can't sponsor you in the manner of which we should sponsor uh, a new member. You live here in Tyler, and I live in Palestine. But he says every every morning, every morning, during the week, why you will have a letter or some or a card or something pertaining to AA. That went on for 93 days. I'd even gotten to the point I'd wait till the mailman come and I says, "Now if I don't get a letter or a card today, I'll go get that bottle." And I still got that letter on the 34th. He knew alcoholics better than I thought he did. On the 34th, uh, on the 34th day. I got a letter, and he says, if you're thinking about getting that bottle, you just, well, forget it, because I've got all the rest of your letters already addressed. (laughs) But there was some great wisdom in those letters, and I got those out before I come up here. I copied off a few of these little quickies, and I like, I I live by quickies. I like them in our, uh, I, I like them in our club room, in every club room that I go to. I look around on the walls. And those little smarties that some of them call them, uh, uh, by the grace of God and first things first. And there's one down in uh, there's one down <clears throat> in South Texas that I like and talking about drinking. Says if you're gonna stop drinking, you gotta stop drinking. That's just about as good A.A. talk as you ever heard. If you're gonna stop drinking, you gotta stop drinking. There's another one that I read. that it says it's not the falling in the water that drowns, just to stay in there. <laughs> and uh, that, those, those little, they little creative mental pictures. I like that one up in Memphis where it says I've had just about all of this fun that I can stand. <laughs> We got one in Kilgore and it says if uh, you're dissatisfied with AA, all of your problems, your grief and your trouble will gladly be refunded to you at the end of the meeting. So all of these little things here and Doc and I picked out his letters and I put some, wrote them down on the card here. It says, there are 52 cards in the deck. Place them on the table face up and let's be honest with ourselves and each other that it might be a good time to start getting honest and telling the truth. It might be a good time to start making amends. It might be a good time to start facing reality and accepting responsibilities. And if you have any money, it might be a good time to pay your debts. I like this one here. It says, what's your problem besides drinking? And what do you want to do about it and when do you want to start? You told me what you want, and I'll tell you what I think you need. It says first things first, stop drinking and quit kidding yourself. It says nice things will be said about us if we are sober. But did we ever try looking at them as a challenge rather than a statement of facts? Did you ever try looking at yourself in the light of a culprit rather than a victim? Wisdom in this individual's mind there that he gave us these little seeds that we grow in today. Did, did you ever see it didn't you ever see a drunk before you started drinking? Didn't you ever have a faint awareness of what alcohol did to people? <clears throat> isn't it true that uh, that being aware of the fact that this thing called egotism which isn't born in the bottle causes you to say <clears throat> to yourself it will never happen to me? If it is true then you can give your answer you have the answer and you won't have to struggle through life looking for an excuse or an alibi You can leave alcoholism to the experts and devote your time and attention to the alcoholics I want to say amen to that That <laughs> after all no one what causes alcohol no one knows what causes alcoholism So what about alcohol don't try to save the world. Stay at home and try to practice these principles in your home and in your business and among your thousands of friends, both in AA and out. And after a reasonable length of time, you will retire and a new team will take the field. Here's a good one. Everybody should be chairman of something sometimes. And each should have his or her day in the sun. Of course, this can be dangerous, as if I've noticed a few who apparently have been out in the sun too long. <laughs> I have chosen as my sole spiritual entity, and not a creed, but a code. Mine is a spiritual re- code that requires not only that I believe in God, but I must believe in the things that he believes in sufficiently that I ha- make a reasonable effort to try to live them. I have a responsibility to every member of AA and in so far as possible, I give them at least the same opportunity to recover that was given to me. While I did many wrong things during my drinking, I do not feel that God punishes me for them. I was asked the same question that my Savior asked so many times. Would you be made whole? When I answered yes, I was on my way back, and the power of choice and free will was mine again. Like most things in AA, the answer is simple. When you look at it, take an honest look. Take, for example, the, prob- uh, the problem of refusing a- an offered drink. My answer is simple. I'm sorry, I can't drink. A.A. is a proving ground where people learn to stand on their own feet and carry their own weight. I like what Louis Sands says, learn to walk like you talk. Here's one from Dr. Bob says, a man who does not accept his responsibility is a bum. If he drinks, he's a drunken bum. If he comes to A.A. and just sits there and does nothing, he's still a bum. That Burton, you're a pretty nice guy. Now all you've got to do is prove it. <laughs> and in the years to come, when you have, uh, when when you have, you will be given a better understanding of what, thank God for another day, really means. The wisdom that these individuals left that you and I might carry these to others. Doc took me to my first uh, convention 18 years ago, and it was the second state convention. And he carried me to everyone during his lifetimes, or I went with him, in the flesh, so to speak. And so, I, Doc, I kind of feel like Doc's along here with, with us here today, and all of these individuals who carried this message before and that left that you and I might be happy today. We have as our next speaker one of those individuals... Courtney A., who is a member of the uh, Bentwood Group in Los Angeles. He's a writer by profession, and that is the extent of the information that he wanted me to tell you. And I like those little simple introductions. Uh, our introductions get way out of line many times in regards to uh, carrying our weight too far into the material world. There's not anything with uh, in uh, this uh, material world that, uh, that we are against. And uh, we, you Alanons out there, we appreciate you more than anything. You know, I always get a little bit disturbed about the uh, Al-Anons. I, they're kind of like that little girl that asked her, uh, talking to her, her girlfriend one day. And she says, I wonder what my mother did when she was my age that makes her so suspicious of me. <laughs> But these, you Alanons, we are so grateful to you, and uh, in the picture today, I was grateful there for Lois. And uh, I think this is a family disease. I think this is a family program. And uh, <clears throat> that's your job, Courtney. <clears throat> talking about creating a light up here, I don't know what it's doing, but it's not bothering me. So here we, uh, uh, we're we're grateful for your presence here. The only thing about uh, you, Alanon, you know you kind of feel sorry for us. And we in turn feel sorry for you. You see, we know what's the matter with us. (laughs) But we're so grateful for your presence here, and it is my pleasure and, and honor that I give you Courtney now from Los Angeles.
1: Well, my name is Courtney, and I'm an alcoholic, and uh, I spent a good time of uh, this evening, when I should have been eating dinner, uh, looking out over this rather impressive gathering and thinking, gee, this is an awfully funny-looking AA meeting. But uh, gradually, as Burton began to speak, I began to realize that this is an AA meeting, And my only function as an alcoholic and an AA member is to tell you something about what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And as a matter of fact, because my drinking career was rather long, I usually uh, contract that a little bit. I usually leave out uh, what I'm like now, partly because I'm not entirely sure. Uh, On this matter, uh, I think uh, the best answer can be given in the words of the two men who met on the street. Man number one said to man number two, How's your wife? And man number two said, Compared to what? (laughs) Well, compared to what it was, it's better. I had quite a long drinking career it lasted about 35 years and the fact that I am sober and alive after a drinking career of that length suggests that I must be some kind of slow-motion alcoholic and this is about the case I think it is probable that through the first 25 years of my drinking career I may not have been an alcoholic at all temperamentally yes from childhood, But the reason I say I may not have been an alcoholic during those early years was because at that time I could do the two things that it seems to me an alcoholic cannot do. The first thing I could do was to choose the times when I drank. And the second thing I could do was stop. But then something changed. Not overnight. I don't even know what year. But gradually, I lost the ability to choose the times when I drank. I became a compulsive drinker. I had to have something to drink every day. Now, I didn't know this. I thought, uh, as I had heard my doctor say, that as a man gets along into mature years... He works in a tense profession, as I do. A little alcohol to relax with at the end of the day is a pretty good idea. Uh, Alcohol, you know, is the tranquilizer and sedative that mankind has had a longer experience with than any other. And so it's natural when we have this much experience with a sedative that we should use it for that purpose when it's needed. And the doctor and I thought, that it was needed it seemed to me an excellent idea to have a couple of martinis before dinner a little brandy with the coffee afterwards possibly a scotch and soda or two uh, before bedtime this all made good sense but actually i was a compulsive drinker i had to have something to drink every day i spent all my waking hours i realize now thinking about drinking during this period, thinking what I would have that day, where I would have it, when I would have it, how much I would allow myself. So I think this was the time when I became an alcoholic. I was now on the top of the ski jump, starting down. But I couldn't possibly know any of these things because I still had the other ability that, to me, alcoholics lack i could still stop i drank this way compulsively but with control for perhaps five years and then the second change occurred this time my drinking went out of control and so there gradually emerged the particular pattern of drinking that i had when i came to AA. I emphasized my particular pattern Because it seems to me, on the basis of what I've seen, that there are all kinds of patterns of drinking among alcoholics. We have among us the periodic drinkers, the men and women who can uh, remain without drinking for days, weeks, months, and sometimes years, sometimes without even the desire. Then they take one drink and the roof falls in. Frankly, I don't understand this type of alcoholic. Then we have the other type, the daily drinker like myself, and among us there's a very wide variation. I have seen men and women come into AA on what I would consider nothing, a few ounces of hard liquor at a time, and yet they're alcoholics, I know their stories, and I know it. At the other extreme, I have a very good friend in Los Angeles who came to AA after 40 years of drinking. At the end, he was consuming three-fifths of scotch a day and taking 30 grams of amitol with it, which in itself is two or three times a killing dose. Well, those are the extremes that I've observed myself. And based on these extremes, I've come to the conclusion that I'm what you might call the normal, typical, everyday type of alcoholic. At the end, I was drinking about a quart of gin a day. I didn't drink this every day. I'd drink it for two or three days until I was more or less exhausted. Then I'd drop down to what was nothing for me, half a pint or so, and then I'd build it back to the court. I suppose I ran through two of these cycles every 10 or 12 days. Now, for some people, this might be normal social drinking, but it wasn't for me. It was a full-time job, day and night. It left me no time for anything else. I recognized that something was wrong, and so I did what was natural for me under these conditions. I went to a first-class Beverly Hills psychiatrist for help specifically with my drinking problem. I went to this man for more than two years. I got a great deal of help from him in many areas of my life, but my drinking continued to get worse and worse. Now, I don't blame him for this. I don't blame psychiatry and I don't blame medicine. I had a great deal of first class medical care at the same time. I recognize now that there are many diseases of the body that medicine cannot deal with successfully in the present state of knowledge and we don't blame medicine for this. Muscular dystrophy is a good example, leukemia is another. We know that the researchers are working on it and we hope that someday they'll find the solution. Similarly, there are illnesses of the mind and the emotions and the spirit that psychiatry apparently cannot deal with successfully in the present state of knowledge, and active alcoholism is one of them. So one morning in the summer of 1957, the psychiatrist told me flatly, and in just about these words, that I was a chronic, and I thought he said hopeless, alcoholic. He hadn't actually said hopeless. That was what I read into his his expression and his tone of voice. He recommended that I go to a hospital or a sanitarium to dry out. But he also told me, frankly, that the moment they released me, I would resume drinking. He said what would happen would be that I would recover a little health so I could drink longer. I didn't understand uh, this peculiar comment because I didn't know that our family doctor had told my wife that I was drinking myself to death, that absolutely nothing could be done about it, and I could not possibly hope to live more than another year or so. Well, since I didn't know this verdict, but I had the other one from the psychiatrist, I decided that under these circumstances, I might as well resign from psychiatry and undertake a self-treatment at home. Now, by a self-treatment, I didn't mean stopping drinking. What I meant was trying to get back to the pattern of drinking that I had once enjoyed and practiced successfully, it seemed to me, for so many years. So being a methodical kind of guy, I looked up alcoholism in a standard medical textbook and got a pretty bad scare. But uh, I did notice it said something about bromides under hospital conditions. Well, it seemed to me that my home was practically a hospital by now anyhow. So, I laid in a large supply of bromides, triple bromides, and started taking 15 grains a day, adding them to some of the things I was already taking the phenobarbital, the secanol, the nembutal, the codeine in the one grain tablets for the headaches, you can understand that. And uh, along in here, my doctor began to help me. He's a fairly well known internist. And like all men of this type, he receives floods of new and comparatively untried medications from the major drug houses who ask him to try them on his patients and see what happens. Uh, Clinical research, as it is called in the medical profession. Well, I believe now that he picked out of this daily assortment all the drugs that affected the central nervous system and passed them over to me on the theory that at this stage nothing could do any harm and something might do some good. Uh, so I began to get quite an assortment of drugs. I won't detail them, but I remember that one of them, one of the first, was a drug called Tulcerol. Now this is a muscle relaxer, and we both agreed at the time that my muscles needed relaxing. LAUGHTER he told me that he had heard of a man who took seven of these tablets at one time without any appreciable damage. They were still establishing the dosage. Uh, I took either 21 or 23 one night, and I recall looking up at his face from the bedroom, bathroom floor uh, as he was telling my wife that my blood pressure was zero. <laughs> But I was relaxed. (laughs) And and for that purpose, at least, I can recommend Halserol. Well, I had other drugs. I had the standard tranquilizers. I received the so-called psychic energizers. I had drugs that would relax me, that would put me to sleep that would wake me up, that would make me go sidewise. Uh, I took them all by the handful. After all, they were free, most of them. But uh, I continued washing them down with this quart of gin a day, and it gradually began to be apparent to me that my home treatment was not a complete success. By now I was having a number of the symptoms that many of us have had, Uh, Some alcoholics toward the end lose weight. Others gain. I was a gainer. (laughs) I then carried uh, something like 60 pounds more than I'm carrying now, and this tonnage was of a most impressive royal purple color. (laughs) I looked like a barrel of grape jelly on legs, Uh, but I didn't smell like one, they tell me. Uh... At any rate, I had this experience. I was having experiences like crawling up a long hall on hands and knees in what seemed to be a 150-mile-an-hour wind (laughs) to where the gin was kept and then having the first one or two bounce before one would stay down. I was having the blackouts, which terrified me. I was having the hallucinations, the voices, which terrified me. I was hearing the music, which I miss. Uh, the, the music, in my case, was perfectly beautiful. It was always symphonic music, the type I liked. It was like having one of the symphonic type of radio stations with me. This was before transistor radios. Uh, wherever I went, the music went. So I miss that. But what I don't miss, but never want to forget, are the terrors of the night that many of us know so well. Waking up in the middle of the night with a start of fear, this feeling of imminent doom or disaster about to strike from some unknown direction, shaking with fear, perspiring, the bed full of perspiration, occasionally more than perspiration. Uh, This type of uh, experience began to convince me that my home treatment was not a complete success and I began to think of AA. I had heard of AA. I had been finding AA pamphlets all around the house (laughs) and reading them on the sly, but I didn't feel that I was quite ready. I had a somewhat mistaken impression about you. I thought you all lived under bridges and behind signboards and crept out at night into dark holes and corners and there with teeth and fists clenched, told each other not to drink, and this prospect was not particularly attractive. I had another more personal reason. These gyrations had taken me just about to Christmas of 1957, and I'm one of those alcoholics who is not going to go to AA voluntarily just before Christmas if I can make it through the holidays, and I did. Actually, I made it into the middle of January of 1958. And even then, I must confess, I did not come to you voluntarily or even under my own power. I was taken against my will and by force. Uh, this happened because one morning in mid January, a minister dropped in to see me one morning. Uh, he was a good friend of mine, not an alcoholic, and I was not a member of his church. Uh, I greeted him in the pajamas and bathrobe I'd worn through the last half of the holidays. We went down into the living room, sat down in a couple of chairs, and talked about absolutely nothing for half an hour. Uh, he didn't bring up the subject of drinking, and I certainly wasn't going to, but I knew why he was there, of course, and he knew I knew. he went away. And later that day or the next day, in a burst of honesty, I wrote him a letter. I told him that drinking had got out of control with me, And if he had anything to suggest, I would just as soon hear it. So he came back a morning or so later, same time in the morning. I was wearing the same costume. We uh, went down and sat in the same chairs, but the dialogue was different. He's had a lot of experience with alcoholics, and he really laid it on the line. He gave me what was essentially a pitch. He capped this pitch by saying that he had known AA to help people like me, and if I were willing, he would be willing to take me to a meeting. I said, sure, I'd be glad to go, which was a lie, Uh, but I thought he was talking about a meeting, if it were like most organizations I'd known, uh, probably would be held once a month, and the next meeting would probably be in about two weeks. In other words, I assumed he was softening me up. But he's dealt with people like me, he merely said, fine. There's a meeting at Brentwood tonight. I'll call for you at 8 o'clock. And he was out of there before I could open my mouth. This made me nervous. When he arrived, I was shaved, dressed, and drunk. Uh, Between the time of his leaving and his return, I had drunk at least a fifth of gin, and I couldn't even stand up. But he's bigger than I am, determined. He didn't argue. He just got a hold of me, hauled me outside, stuffed me into his car, drove me dar- down this dark January night to where the parking lot was, hauled me out of the parking lot, up a flight of stairs, and into a tremendous, brilliantly lighted room. <laughs> when I could see, I thought there were 10,000 people in there, all looking at me, and they were. Uh, People hardly ever get taken to that meeting quite as drunk as I was. But I was uh, escorted into the back of the room, seated in a chair, and my first AA meeting took place, and that's all I can tell you about it, except that there was a great deal of laughter. Since Elsa is here, however, I must tell you that I learned months later that the speaker at that meeting was Chuck C., but you'll never prove it by me. Uh, You can prove it by him, however. Uh, He embarrassed me rather considerably down around Newport Beach a couple of years ago when he told the delighted audience that uh, although I was way in back and he was way up here, he could smell me from where he stood. (laughs) At any rate, something must have happened because getting ready for the next meeting the next night, I drank only about a pint And thus I have a vague recollection of this meeting. Uh, There were two speakers, and the first one, a woman, said something about getting drunk, getting into her car, driving into a tree, and flying through the windshield, and everybody laughed. And this made a tremendous impression on me. (laughs) Well, that was my second meeting. The next night, which was a Saturday, I was taken to the Malibu meeting. Uh, This is a rather remarkable thing because it's held in the courtroom of the sheriff's station and the speaker speaks from behind the judge's bench, which is quite a switch for some of us. But at any rate, I was comparatively sober by now. I'd had only nine or ten ounces getting ready for this meeting, and so I was seated right up front instead of in back. And for the first time... I heard something that is a custom in Southern California. At every meeting in Southern California, uh, the opening uh, consists of the reading of the first portion of Chapter 5 of the big book, the part that includes the 12 steps and ends with that little ABC section. Now, up to this time, I hadn't heard anybody read anything from, uh, from anything. Uh, I didn't even know there was a book. I certainly didn't understand what was read, although in Southern California we get to hearing this thousands of times, but I don't think many people do out there at their first meetings. What I got out of it was that AA seemed to involve some kind of more or less organized program of recovery, and it had a textbook or a manual of recovery. Well, fortunately for me, the man who took me to that meeting lent me a copy of the book when he dropped me off at his house. And that night, lying in bed with one hand over one eye, for understandable reasons, I uh, read through almost the entire book. I think I skipped the chapter to the employer, but I didn't have one at the time and I wasn't interested. (laughs) But uh, I suppose reading that book was the equivalent of attending another dozen or 15 AA meetings because along with other material, the back of the book contains the personal stories of 37 recovered alcoholics, and I could identify with some of them. At any rate, I haven't had a drink since. Now that Malibu meeting took place January 18, 1958, and what I have to talk about now is what happened, specifically what happened to me in terms of what i have come to think of as the gifts i received from aa or through aa see when i woke up the morning of the 19th a sunday i hadn't the faintest idea that i would go through the entire day without taking a drink there was still something to drink in the house i certainly had no idea that i would have that i would go through the next and the next and the next and then I would be telling you about it nearly seven and a half years later now one reason I didn't know was because I had had the idea that if you go to AA and it takes so to speak the desire to drink falls away from you like a discarded cloak and it didn't fall away from me I had an intense desire to drink but I didn't drink Now this doesn't surprise me as much now as it did then. I've seen the same thing happen to too many other people. In fact, if you read the big book and read Dr. Bob's story in it, the the story of the co-founder of AA, you will find that Dr. Bob tells in it how he had an intense desire to drink for more than two years after he stopped drinking. But he didn't drink either. I have a kind of hunch that the reason may have been the same in both cases I believe now I had lost not the desire but something much more important I had lost the compulsion that strange mysterious power or force whatever it is that had me drinking when I knew I shouldn't when I knew perfectly well what was going to happen and sometimes when I didn't even want to this went away Leaving me with the desire. And the desire I could handle. I've always been able to handle desires, as I think most of us have. I think we're pretty strong-willed people, by and large. Like you, perhaps, I have a desire, sometimes quite intense, especially when the Christmas bills come in, every time I walk into a bank and see what's on the other side of the counter. I have similar desires sometimes when I walk past jewelry store windows. But I haven't yielded to these desires up to now. I have other desires, even at my age, but uh, this sort of thing uh, I managed to uh, cope with most of the time anyhow. And uh, so I naturally wondered uh, what had happened. Now, I know what it felt like. I came into that first AA meeting physically bowed down. I think of myself as carrying a heavy weight on my back, something like a big sack of sand weighing two or three hundred pounds. Something that had happened in those early meetings and through the reading of the book had punctured that sack of sand and gradually the load in it had dribbled away. When it was gone, I was free for the first time in my life, I believe, in a totally new way because what that sack contained, I think, and what the load consisted of, were the components of the compulsion. The one I was most aware of then, and the one I always mention first now, is a feeling that so far as I have been able to discover is shared by every alcoholic I have ever met in my life, drunk or sober. I don't say alcoholics are the only ones who have this feeling, but all alcoholics in my experience have it. This was a feeling that I used to think of as loneliness. But I have heard speakers speak of it in all kinds of ways, and I think we're talking about the same thing. It's a feeling of being on the outside when others are on the inside. It's a feeling of being rejected without a voice or a hand being raised to reject you. It's a feeling of not belonging. It's a feeling of being inferior when you know that that you are not inferior. Whatever it is, this feeling went away. And along with it, many of those other painful feelings that I had as an alcoholic, the remorse, the humiliation, the resentment, the self-pity, and all the rest of it. When they were gone, I was free. Now, I wondered what happened, and so I used to attend those early AA meetings uh, listening most to the drunkologues. These these heroic drinking stories of which we have so many in AA, some of which we have heard uh, the last few days. Well, to my dismay, I began to come to the conclusion, after not very much of this, that instead of being uh, the worst drinker in the world, as I had thought when I was taken into AA, that I was nothing but a patty waste drinker. Uh, this began to embarrass me uh, quite a bit. But, uh, you see, I had always been uh, a gentlemanly drinker. Uh, this was the way it seemed to me. I had begun drinking uh, during Prohibition, uh, home brew and that sort of thing. But in the middle 30s, I began associating with some of the uh, fairly high-up executives, particularly in the automobile industry and in Detroit. And these men were mostly martini drinkers. They drank martinis before lunch and I wanted to be like them. I admired them and so I drank martinis too. Unlike them, however, uh, I had improved the martini over the years. I had improved it by eliminating the non-essentials. Gradually, I had eliminated uh, first the olive, then the vermouth, then the ice, and then the glass. <laughs> but uh, I, was, I was still a gentlemanly drinker, at least in my own estimation. And uh, I want to illustrate this uh, with one little episode because it makes a point. And then I will drop this part of the subject This happened perhaps a year before I came to AA. My son, who was then 15 or 16, was having dinner with us this evening, and during dinner he said something disrespectful to me. It was worse than disrespectful, it was insulting. And I will have to say on his behalf that it is true that my face had fallen into my plate (laughs) once or perhaps twice, I don't remember exactly. At any rate, I realized that I had to do something to reprimand this boy. I had to make him ashamed of himself, naturally, as a father, and I had to make him respect me. And you fathers will understand that my natural impulse was to reach across the table and slug him. But uh, I don't believe in slugging children, And in any case, this particular child happened to stand well over six feet, 200 pounds of nothing but muscle. So that was out. What was I going to do? I pondered this question for a while, keeping my face carefully out of the plate, Uh, and finally the solution occurred to me. I noticed that he had a glass of milk beside his plate. And so, to make him ashamed of himself, and to make him respect me with great deliberation, looking him dead in the eye, I slowly reached across the table, picked up the glass of milk, and poured it over my own head. (laughs) Now, I don't tell this story to prove that I'm an alcoholic, because it doesn't. Anybody could get drunk the first time in his life and do something equally idiotic. What it proves is quite different. You see, you found this story funny. Well, I think it's funny. I tell it all the time. My family thinks it's funny. Now, uh, But when it happened, nobody thought it was funny. I was indignant, Uh, they were stunned, Uh, but when I sobered up a little bit, I was simply consumed with humiliation and remorse. I felt so bad that within the next two hours, I had to drink myself into complete unconsciousness so I wouldn't feel those terrible feelings. Well, they're all gone now. They're gone in the telling of this story and in the listening to stories like it. And here is where I come to the first two great gifts I received from AA. Because through these stories that we tell, I soon began to discover that underneath we are alike. We feel the same way we all have in our backgrounds these humiliating embarrassing episodes the kind of things that make us break out in sweat at night for the first time in my life I was home I was with people who felt the same way I did this was what I learned so the first great gift I got from you was the gift of identification the realization that i was with my own family my own people now this is enormously important to me because i believe i have come to believe that in some way that i can't define, alcoholics don't feel quite the same way other people feel i think if they felt the way we do They'd be alcoholics, too. And so I was with you. You were sober. You were contented. I heard these hair-raising stories. And what happened? Whenever, Whenever anybody told one of these stories, everybody laughed. And this laughter was not the laughter of ridicule. It was the laughter of sympathetic understanding. And in this laughter, I think, the hatred, the remorse, the humiliation, resentment, the self-pity simply dissolved. So that was the second gift, this blessed, precious gift of laughter. I think it was these two gifts, identification and laughter, that got me sober. By themselves, I don't think they would have kept me sober as long as I have been sober. I received a third gift at the same time. I'm separating these things out, but they really happened. Uh, together, It's merely easier to talk about them this way. The third gift I received was the gift of knowledge of what was wrong with me. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous feeling an outcast, alone, unique, a moral leper, weak-willed, and I was told immediately that this was not necessarily true at all, but that I was sick that I suffered from a disease, which is recognized as as a disease by the American Medical Association and the World Health Organization. This news made me feel a great deal better. I'd had serious illnesses before, and to know that I had another one, that it was medically recognized, and something could be done about it, uh, improved my spirits immensely. What it did for me was to take the hysteria out of it and reduce the whole thing to solid medical common sense. Well, I became so interested that I began reading up on the the disease, attending meetings where AA doctors spoke. Eventually, as I accumulated a library, a series of circumstances occurred which brought me into contact with the professional researchers and the experts into alcoholism most of them not alcoholics themselves, but the the recognized authorities. And so over the years, I have picked up really quite a lot of information about alcoholism. But I should tell you that to me as an alcoholic, most of this information is useless. There is some, however, that's important to me. And this little part that's important, I'd like to pass along to you for what it's worth. I had thought, for instance, that if alcoholism were a disease, it was a rare Skid Row type of disease. And this simply isn't the case. The US Public Health Service now rates alcoholism as one of the four leading public health problems in the United States. Alcoholism is one of the three uh, most common killing diseases. California, Governor Brown has recently said in a press conference that it is California's number one public health problem. All the authorities agree that the number of alcoholics in the United States is at least five million. In my own state of California, I think I can say frankly that the figures are staggering. Uh, In California, all the estimates agree, and I'm I'm quoting now the official figures from the Bureau of Alcoholic Research and Rehabilitation of the California Department of Public Health. In California, the estimates are that there are more than 800,000 alcoholics. In my own county, Los Angeles County, there are more than 327,000 alcoholics. That is a little more than 8% of all the adults over the age of 20 in California. I thought you would be interested in knowing what the comparable figures were for your own state of Texas. So I asked the California Department of Public Health to get me the estimates, the official estimates, and they did. According to these estimates, there are more, there are just about, just a shade less, than a quarter of a million alcoholics in the state of Texas. Just a shade under 4% of all the adults in Texas over the age of 20 are in some stage of alcoholism. You notice the percentage in Texas is about half that of California, and the only way I can explain it is in the words of a famous architect who said if you could tilt the entire United States, all the crackpots would wind up in California, and I sometimes think somebody did it. Uh, At any rate, it's obvious with these figures that whatever else it is, uh, alcoholism is not a skid row disease. Uh, Actually, again, the official figures are that somewhere around one alcoholic in 25 or 30 is on our skid rows. And this raises the question of where are the others and who are they? Well, as to where they are, they are everywhere that alcohol is available for drinking. And as to who they are, they can be anybody. Apparently, all you need to catch alcoholism, so to speak, is to be exposed to it by drinking something that contains alcohol, just as all you have to do to be exposed to smallpox, is or to catch smallpox, is to be exposed to it if you're going to catch it. I think of the wide variety of men and women that I have seen, all occupations and professions, that I know are alcoholics, most of them in AA. I have seen in California literally children come into AA. By this I mean boys of 15 and girls, boys and girls of 15 and 16. I know they're alcoholics. I know their stories. At the other extreme there's a man in Pasadena whom I love. Everybody else does too. Everybody calls him Pappy. Uh, This man is now 94 years old and has been sober 14 years. He came to AA at the age of 80. He was staying in a goodwill home, and they told him they'd throw him out. Uh, The old story, and he came to AA. He even started his own group because it's a little difficult for him to stay up uh, as late at night as uh, some of the rest of us children uh, can. So those are the extremes of age. As to occupation and profession, we've already seen during this conference that nearly every occupation and profession is represented among alcoholics. So I'll merely name a few that came as a big surprise to me uh, when I first came to AA. I would not expect moral and spiritual leaders to become alcoholics because we think of this as a moral disease. Yet I know ministers and priests who are alcoholics and AA members. I've heard of rabbis. I don't know any. Uh, I would not expect a healer of sick minds. Be an alcoholic because we think of this as a psychological or emotional disease and it is but i know of psychiatrists i know several clinical psychologists who are alcoholics and an AA members i know four in my own county of los angeles doctors surgeons people like these we often hear the expression sober as a judge but uh, i know judges who are alcoholics and AA members I've come to know, particularly in the last year or two, a great many of of the municipal judges in uh, my county, and some of them tell me that there are several more uh, Los Angeles municipal judges who probably should be AA members. But I wouldn't know anything about that. I'm merely quoting some judges. Uh, Politicians, well, it's notorious. I know I'm not violating anonymity here. I think everyone knows that the governor of Iowa has been an AA member for 12 years. I think you saw the national news magazines and newspapers a few months ago. An ex-governor of West Virginia had been discovered driving a cab in Chicago. He has now sobered up. I'm told he's joined AA and is on his way to recovery. So you can have a high political office. This does not keep you from being an alcoholic. The same thing is true of uh, the police. I know policemen in California, police matrons, state troopers, this sort of thing, who are alcoholics and AA members. Being an eminent scientist, university professor, or this sort of thing doesn't keep you from being an alcoholic either. My own sponsor is now chairman of the Department of History of of quite a large Midwestern university. And so it goes. You see a non-selective disease in a certain respect. All you need to do to catch it, if you're going to catch it, is to be exposed to it. But not everyone who's exposed to smallpox catches it, and neither does everyone who's exposed to alcoholism. Only a fraction of those who are exposed catch it. Nobody knows the percentages in here or the proportions, but I would suppose that maybe one drinker in five, maybe one in eight, something like that, becomes an alcoholic. The rest can go on drinking merrily as long as they live. And I, for one, wish them more power. I have absolutely nothing against drinking or alcohol. But if you do become an alcoholic, as I did, then you have a disease that is permanent. All the authorities, with a very few exceptions, agree that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. This disease is not curable in the sense that a person who becomes an alcoholic can ever hope to drink normally again It's a chronic disease. Uh, I think of it in terms of uh, diabetes. We all know that the diabetic, in most cases, can live quite comfortably with his diabetes, provided he lives in a certain way, which for him includes uh, maybe RNAs or insulin, something of this sort, and provided he observes a certain diet, which in his case excludes sugar completely. Within these limits, he's okay, and this is fortunate. Uh, Similarly, as an alcoholic, uh, I can live quite comfortably with my disease, provided I try to live, because I don't always succeed, in a certain way, which I call the AA way for short, and provided I observe a certain diet, which in my case excludes alcohol completely. Within these limitations, I'm okay. And this is very fortunate for me because my disease, besides being permanent, is progressive. It always gets worse, apparently, It never gets better. And unless it is arrested in some such way as this, it almost always seems to end in a very messy, permanent type of insanity or an equally messy, painful, lingering death. Now, I didn't know these facts before I came to AA. I learned them after I got here. And there's one fact I learned that is even more important to me than the others. And this is that to the medical profession and the psychiatric profession, alcoholism is still a mysterious disease. It is an obscure disease in a certain uh, sense. By this I mean that it's, it's its causation is not yet understood and neither is its underlying nature. I don't make this statement lightly. You'll find it in all the literature on alcoholism. I was in a conference uh, not more than a month ago at the Neuropsychiatric Hospital at UCLA uh, in the research unit that deals with alcoholism. And one of the last things that Dr. Keith Dittman, the director of this unit, which has worked for several years, told us was, as yet, we're doing a lot of research, but we don't know what causes alcoholism. We don't know what it really is underneath. In other words, as we've already heard, Uh, during this conference and as we can read in the big book the drinking itself is a symptom but it happens to be a symptom that can kill when a symptom develops to the point where it can kill you might almost say it becomes a disease in its own right this sometimes happens with fevers we all know that a fever is a symptom of something else but occasionally a fever will get up to 108 degrees somewhere uh, in that range where it can quickly destroy the mind or kill unless it is reduced. And then the problem for the physician is to get rid of the fever and worry about finding the cause of the disease and treating that later. There is a growing body of medical and research opinion that uh, really says what our book has been saying for many, many years, that perhaps alcoholism involves at least two illnesses a bodily illness, and a mental or emotional illness. As we say in our book, an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. Perhaps a physician today, a non-alcoholic physician, might use different language. He might say some peculiar kind of change in the body, the nature of which is not understood, which tends to occur after a number of years of drinking. Whatever it is, this change, once it sets in, is apparently permanent. It's apparently not reversible. It may even be progressive in itself. There is a growing body of evidence, both on animals and on human beings, which seems to point the finger at the central nervous system, but the future will have to tell us what that is. Whatever it is, there's nothing that can be done about this. If this happened in my body, uh, it's over with. I'll always have it. In AA language, for me, one drink is too many and a thousand is not enough. I have permanently lost control, the ability to control in that sense. Well, if this were all there were to my disease, it would be very easy to deal with. If it were like an allergy, I have friends who are allergic to strawberries. They get giant hives from them. They have no trouble leaving strawberries alone. But you see, I had the other disease. I had the compulsion. I had the obsession. This strange, mysterious force that I've already mentioned They had me drinking sometimes when I didn't even want to. This, fortunately, can be cured. And this, to me, is what the AA program deals with. I don't know what the origin of this obsession is in any particular case. I have some clues, I think, in my own case. I don't think it's very important. I will tell you a little about my background just in case it helps with someone's identification. We often hear alcoholics say that they came from alcoholic families. I didn't. Nobody in my family drank. I can't point to that as a cause. I can't point to lack of economic security. I grew up in a good deal of economic security. I can't point to lack of religious training. I had a good religious training. I can't point to lack of education. I had a good education with advanced degrees. So I can't point to any of those things, but I can point to something that I became aware of when I was very young maybe three or four years old, somehow there grew up between me and the rest of the human species, including my own family, what I think of as a kind of glass wall. Through this wall, I could communicate intellectually two and two is four, or will it rain tonight, that sort of thing, but not the free, easy give and take of feeling, both of liking and disliking, of love and hate. I think what happened was, at this point in my life, I became stunted. Spiritually, or if you don't like that word, emotionally. I think I stopped growing. In some area of my life, and I suspect I know the reasons, but they don't matter, just as we've seen some children grow normally bodily for several years, and then one part of the body simply stops growing. And so we have an adult with an arm or a leg that is child's size. Well, I think this happened to me spiritually. At any rate, I was in pain inside. I was full of anxiety, resentment, and hatred. And I immediately set to work trying to conceal these feelings from myself and the world around me. I tried to imitate other people. I built up a very complicated system of defenses. But I was in pain. And for the relief of this pain as a boy, I took refuge in books. Books were my alcohol. But... Uh, When I got into my teens, uh, I discovered that books are no substitute for girls. Uh, Now I was uh, skinny, bashful, covered with pimples, had a bad stammer, and uh, I discovered alcohol. Alcohol did for me socially what books had done for me when I was a boy. And this isn't bad. Millions of kids make this discovery every year, and they don't become alcoholics. Alcohol is a good social lubricant. But you see, I was already sick. I think of myself in terms of a person who has headaches. Now, when I have headaches, I take aspirin, and aspirin works pretty well with me. The headache goes away, and there's no more trouble. The aspirin doesn't cure the headache, but it relieves the pain, and the cause takes care of itself. But suppose I had the kind of headaches that might be caused by a growing brain tumor. In such a circumstance, I might take more and more aspirin to relieve this pain, and it might work at first, but the pain would always come back. So I might take more and more aspirin, and eventually the aspirin would become a poison uh, because I would be taking so much. Well, I didn't suffer from a physical headache, but I think of myself as suffering from a spiritual headache or a headache of the soul. And when I got into my teens... I discovered that, in the words of the Alka-Seltzer ads, relief is just a swallow away. (laughs) In other words, alcohol became my spiritual aspirin, and it worked just fine. I was one of the lucky ones. My My disease progressed very, very slowly. But the mere blows of life themselves are likely to aggravate any condition we have to have And so it was inevitable that as my spiritual headache became worse and worse, I used more and more of my spiritual aspirin. Eventually it became a poison to me. I became addicted to it because alcohol is a true narcotic in the sense of morphine, but rather weakly addicted. And eventually I collapsed. As we say in AA, I hit bottom. It was in this condition that I came to you. I uh, suppose in terms of our program, and I'm going to speak only the first three steps, I think I knew that I was powerless over alcohol and my life was unmanageable before I got here. I uh, think I knew that only some power greater than myself could restore me to, uh, well, I wouldn't have liked the word sanity, but say normality. I knew this power couldn't be medicine or psychiatry. They'd failed me. It couldn't be religion. I'd rejected that in my teens. It couldn't be myself. I'd failed. What could it be? Well, as I've told you, I came here, and I discovered you were people like me. And you were comfortable. And you weren't drinking. So I decided to do what you told me to. Uh, You gave me the book. And you said, here are 12 steps if you try your best to live according to these 12 steps you have a chance of growing up from spiritual infancy at least in the direction of spiritual and emotional adulthood the steps were something like a ladder well i decided to do what you what you told me to whether i liked it or not and uh So I got hold of the 12 steps and started studying them, and I came to number three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, and right there I gagged on that word God. I told my wife, it looks to me as if I have come across another of these crackpot religions, and if my sobriety depends on my adhering to anything like this, I am eventually going to get drunk. Yet I was faced with the undeniable fact that you were like me, you were sober, you were comfortable, I'd said I'd do what I could, so I began to study the 12 steps and pretty soon I discovered not all the steps mention God. The fourth doesn't, for instance. Sometimes when a step mentions God, there's something else quite practical you can do in it. In the fifth step, for instance, uh, you can admit uh, your defects of character, the things you've done wrong, just another person, as well as to yourself. leave God out of it. So I worked the 12 steps this way, and I stayed sober for about a year. Now, you see, what you had done was to give me the fourth gift. You had given me a program, a method, a set of tools that I could use to grow up with so I wouldn't feel this terrible inner pain that had had me drinking. So that was the fourth gift. But I was still faced with this fact, this word, God. And it bothered me, but I did the steps as well as I could within these limitations. And I was sober this way for perhaps a year before the nature of my error dawned on me. And I always talk about it because I think it's very common uh, among people who come to AA, particularly if they're the so-called sophisticates or have technological or scientific training. It finally dawned on me that when I had made that initial, very simple decision, really in the first week of my coming to A.A. the decision to do what you told me to whether I liked it or not I had in fact given my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood that power for the first time in my life not as some creed, theology, or church had defined or described God Then I realized with full force that all that the second step said was a power greater than myself. It left it up to me to define that power or think of it in any way I chose as long as it was greater than I was. Then I read the traditions and I found that the second tradition says our ultimate authority is a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. And so if I didn't know what this power was, I knew where it was. It was right here in the group. And then, so to speak, I was in. I then realized that before this, I had had two gods in my life. There had been the Methodist God of my childhood, whom I had interpreted as a God of vengeance. I had rejected this God as preposterous in my my middle teens. I had taken my next God, the God of the scientists and the philosophers, of the Einsteins and the Bertrand Russells. This is a perfectly real God. This is a God that made the universe and everything in it including the very laws of logic by which we think about it. But this law, God, you see, was remote. I couldn't give my will and my life over to Him, but I could to You. So this was the way it happened to me. This was the way I was given the final gift. And I don't know whether to speak of this as a gift or not, because I had to do something. I had to make a decision. I had to dedicate myself. But I will call it a gift, the gift of surrender to a power greater than myself. I finally came to conclude that it doesn't matter as long as one observes the reality what one calls this power. Many people come into AA with this feeling about the word God, and I think one can call it anything. There are other words for God in other religions, Allah or Jehovah. These are legitimate words. There are historical words like Jupiter and Zeus. Uh, You can use a very intimate word because I think it starts here with most of us. Uh, We can call it our group or AA. Or we can give it a completely neutral name like it and not worry anymore about it. Or if we happen to belong to the beat type, we have some in our part of the country, Uh, you can call it Zen if you like. Or if you want to be very scientific and very psychiatric, you can give it a good psychiatric name, uh, the name empathy. I use this name for a particular reason. The psychiatrists who deal with very tiny children, by this I mean infants under a year, tell us that infants uh, cry and are disturbed and tense for many reasons. We know this as parents, hunger, thirst, this sort of thing. But this tension can be relieved by satisfying the need, feeding the child or whatever is necessary. But there is one form of painful tension which is different. This is anxiety. The experts say that the child becomes anxious when the person acting as mother, which doesn't have to be a woman even, becomes anxious herself. When the mothering one becomes anxious, the child becomes anxious without even being touched. Anxiety is contagious. And there are some psychiatrists, particularly the Harry Stack Sullivan group of psychiatrists, who believe that some force or power is involved similar in its own way to magnetism or gravity, but not yet uh, measurable by any known means. And they call this empathy. Now, the peculiar thing about empathy-induced anxiety is that you cannot relieve it by satisfying a need. The only way in which it can be relieved is the same way in which it was aroused. When the mothering one becomes secure, then eventually the child becomes free from anxiety by empathy. I suggest I came to you as a spiritual infant, anxious and unsecure, stunted in this area of my life. I found myself for the first time in my life among people exactly like me, but secure, and so maybe it was that type of empathy. Who knows? Essentially, this is all I have to say, except one thing more. For those of you who may be comparatively new to this program and who are scientifically or technologically trained, and in a state like Texas, and in this part of Texas particularly, that must include nearly everybody, I would like to ask, why does this program work? in the scientific sense of the word. Now, this uh, question was raised for me by a mathematical physicist when I had been sober about a year. He was a 36-year-old genius, and I wish I could tell you that he uh, recovered and made the program, but he didn't. He died as a consequence of alcoholism about a year later. But during his life, when I knew him, he insisted he could accept this program if, as a scientist, he could understand why it worked. What do you weigh what do you measure? What's the formula? What's the chemistry? I couldn't tell him. Well, his death forced me to think about it. And uh, this is the conclusion I have come to uh, for what it's worth. In the sense in which, in which he raised the question, I have never met anyone, nor have I read anything, that would tell me why this program works. It certainly uh, seems like a... <coughs> very unscientific way to deal with a disease. There are no long names, no white coats, no needles, no special formulas, nothing but these simple 12 steps. Yet although we lack this kind of scientific statement, we, we have evidence which amounts to proof in itself And this evidence consists of the more than 350,000 alcoholics who are now sober as a result of the AA program. Thirty years ago this month, when this program began, as we heard and saw Bill say this afternoon, for practical purposes, there weren't any. Here and there, there have always been sporadic, occasional recoveries from alcoholism over the centuries. But by and large... Thirty years ago, all an alcoholic like me had to look forward to was this miserable downhill slide to insanity and death. Now, that's all changed in the last 30 years. AA has demonstrated for the first time that alcoholics can recover on a mass basis. AA's demonstration of this fact is what has stimulated the medical research, the interest of religious people, uh, in alcoholism. Up to that time, they all washed our hands, uh, th- their, their hands of us, because we were so hopeless. Well, that has changed. And since alcoholism is a disease then, and since AA has accomplished this result, this must mean that whatever else it is, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a medical discovery of the highest importance comparable in its own way with the discovery of penicillin, which was also a medical accident. There are numerous parallels in medical history to this sort of thing, and I'm going to use only one because it's one that everybody knows. This is smallpox and vaccination. We all know, I think, that in the 18th century, at least 10 million men and women died in Europe and England of smallpox. We know that smallpox is rare today because of vaccination. Most of us know that Dr. Edward Jenner is credited with discovering vaccination in the year 1796. Yet not so many know that Jenner really didn't discover it. He was told when he was a boy of 17, apprenticed to a doctor. He was told by a milkmaid that she could never catch smallpox because she had already had uh, cowpox. Well, Dr. Jenner heard this story over the years of his medical practice from the ignorant country people of England. They couldn't read or write, but they could observe. Finally, he put it to the test. He took an eight-year-old boy named Jimmy Phipps, who had never had smallpox. He inoculated Jimmy from the open cowpox sores on the wrist of a milkmaid who had it. Jimmy caught cowpox, and when he recovered, Dr. Jenner inoculated him in the same way, from an active case of smallpox, and Jimmy didn't get it. That was the first case of vaccination. Essentially, it's the same today. We're given cowpox, so we won't catch smallpox. But what interests me is that Dr. Jenner didn't know why vaccination worked. No doctor of his day knew. No one knew what caused smallpox, and no one knew what it was underneath. It was to be about 70 years, 75 years before it was discovered that bacteria caused disease, and smallpox is not caused by a bacterium, but by a virus, And that was discovered only a few years before I was born. So you see, for about a hundred years, human lives were being saved from this terrible disease by a simple, simple process. Now, nobody knew what caused the disease or what it was really underneath or why this process worked. Now, I think someday the researchers and the scientists are going to discover what alcoholism really is underneath the ideology as they say i think they may very probably discover what causes alcoholism i think it's barely possible that they may discover in the scientific sense why this program works i think it's possible they may improve on it i have an open mind on these matters as the end of our book says we know only a little the future will reveal more but you know if it's going to be like smallpox and vaccination, that day of discovery might not come for another hundred years. And I can't wait. So I'm content to work this program exactly as it is. I'll leave it to the scientists and the researchers to learn the whys and wherefores, and I'll look over their shoulders and cheer them on and uh, wish more power to Meanwhile, I'm working the program. Part of my working it has been speaking to you tonight. You've been very kind, very generous. I'm grateful to you. I'm more grateful to this power greater than myself that expresses itself to me through you. I now use the word God for this power. It doesn't bother me a bit. I think it's a fine common denominator. But if you happen to be new in AA and don't like the word God, Uh, Use a word you do like. You've got a wide choice. You've got uh, Jehovah, Allah, Zeus, my group, AA, it, Zen, empathy. Or maybe I can give it one more name. This is a word we've heard before. I think it's something we can all agree on. It's something we feel at every AA meeting. I felt it the first time I ever walked into your presence. And it's what got me sober and keeps me sober. I certainly feel it now, and I give it back to you. That's love. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Courtney. I have one announcement, two announcements here. A letter from Rush, Texas, Dr. Charles Castney, superintendent of the hospital who has been a friend of all the alcoholics for many, many years, is retiring June the 30th after 50 years of faithful service. We plan to have a big turnout for a special meeting called at 2 p.m. Sunday, June the 20th at the hospital. Our next session at the conclusion of this meeting the dance in the Crystal Room, uh San Jacinto Ballroom. Those, Those of you who purchase your banquet tickets, they'll be available at the uh, desk. They won't be a good at this conference, but you can take them to Fort Worth with you next year. <laughs> Our next meeting will be at 9 a.m. in the morning in the Hospitality and Trinity Room, beginning at Uh, 10 p.m. in the Grand Ballroom. Our good friend Ed Hudson from Dallas will be your chairman and our good friend Clarence Will from St. Petersburg will be your speaker. For you Baptists that uh, want to know how many that are registered here, something under 1,100. In parting, I will quote two more of my good A.A. A. Friends, one for the future and one for the past. For the future, I give you H.T. from in the May's Grapevine of this year. When he's talk- he was talking about A.A. and he says, I expect nothing, ask for everything, and grateful for anything I get. <laughs> I close with the future and quoting from my good friend Homer R., Some people remember their mothers, others the girls they leave behind. But I'd just go down memory lane without a cockeyed thing on my mind. (laughs) This has been a wonderful meeting here all the way through from the beginning on up to now and then we have more to come. Let's be grateful in our hearts as we stand and Repeat the Lord's Prayer, please. May we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in the temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine the kingdom, the power, and the glory
2: forever. Amen.